0: This time, uh, we will dismiss the little people, the children, to Children's Church. Would you stand, please, as we read God's Word together? This is from Ephesians as we continue along. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. This is God's word to us His people. You may be seated. He says um, that we would have knowledge, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. That's the prayer. This is a prayer here. Paul prays. We saw the last two weeks that verses 3 through 14 was one verse in Greek. One sentence, a bunch of commas continuing to go. Same thing here. Next section, Paul finally took a breath. After 14, Put a, there's a period. And then 15 to 23 is another sentence. Again, not the best practice for your uh, essay writing. But Paul gets going and begins to tell of the greatness and the glory and the splendor of who God is and what we have in Christ. It's as if he cannot contain himself. Uh, We need, he says, our eyes opened. Um, You ever have that moment? You're searching for something in your house. Maybe it's your keys. You know, uh, your wallet, your phone. You're searching, you're searching, you're searching. You look everywhere like you can't find it. You're frantic. You're mad. We're going to be lazy. It's awful. I'll never find them. You know, you make all these statements. You're, You're searching, and then it's like right there. It's like right there on the table or it's right in your purse or your bag i said purse assuming a woman did this in their purse or bag where they left it the whole time it was there
1: but you were frantic you would never find it
0: um or maybe you go to uh you go to the fridge you know and the, your, your kids want to catch up and you go and you look and you you see everything, and you look at all the shelves, and you're like, there's no ketchup in here. I can't find it. And your wife's like, it's right there. And you're looking, and you see all the stuff in the back, the, the gross stuff that you did not know was there. And you're looking around, and then finally she comes over there, and it's like, it's right. like It's, it's, it's like right in front of you. You could just, it's right there. Um, sometimes we can't see what's right in front of us, right? It's right there. Everyone else can see it. But we can't see it. Paul in uh, 3-14, through he prayed, thanking God for all the blessings we already have. They're already ours. We possess them. They belong to us in Christ. And in verse 15, he transitions to pray that we would know, that we would see with our heart what we already have been given in Christ. We already possess it. And yet, it's right there. We don't see it. We don't see it. Sometimes we can't see it. Sometimes um, life has been difficult. It's been challenging. We feel beaten up by the world. Uh, the blessings are there, but we, we don't have eyes to see. You know, it's like... Um, Telling a kid from a broken home or abusive home, you know, that, that they're loved and valued. It, it just doesn't stick, right? It hits and falls off. It, it might be. They might have worth, but their experience says this isn't true, and so they can't retain it. There's something about us, have we as we've been weathered in this world and sin and brokenness,
1: that our hearts have trouble receiving, believing,
0: and knowing that which is right in front of us, that which is true, that which has already been accomplished in Christ. Remember, verses 3 through 14. That redemption that he elaborated on over and over and over, it's ours. And yet sometimes we can't see it. We can't receive it. We doubt the goodness of God, his blessings. Too much trouble, too much struggle, too many financial issues, too much marriage Too much life, too much whatever, and all the true things that are already ours, we forget. We don't claim, we don't name, we don't own as ours. Beaten by the world and we cannot see. Paul writes to Ephesus, as we said, a church that is uh, um, in a hostile environment, a a big city, uh, this metropolitan area, diverse um, and the Christians are these outliers. They're marginalized. Um, they're, they're, fine. they're a small group. Uh, it's a very spiritual, uh, demonic, difficult place. Beaten up by the world. Paul's in prison writing to them, this is what you have, first part of Ephesians 1. And now I'm praying that you would know it, that you would believe it your heart would be open to it. That we would know God. That we would know the blessings that we have in God. That our eyes would be open to see what is ours. What is ours? It says multiple times we would have knowledge of God. That we would know God. That is what John says is eternal life. Eternal life is not uh, the abundance of things or wealth. It's the, the eternal life, both quality and quantity, is in relationship with God, to know God. This is eternal life, John says, that, you may, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So here Paul says, we want to know God, would you open our eyes? To know Him, it's there, it's true, it's objectively Christ has done it, He's accomplished it, and yet our hearts don't sense it, we don't experience it, we don't live as though it's a reality. And so, what do you do in those moments?
1: What so we should do more:
0: we pray, right? We pray. That's what Paul does. This is a prayer that we would know God as our hearts are open to see. Three things we need to be open to to know God. First, the hope of our calling. Verse 18, this is sort of the the crux here. He lists three things that he's praying for them. It says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. That you would know it. He's calling Christians to place our hope, to know our hope in Christ. Remember, in the the, the first part of the chapter, he said over and over that we've been called, we've been predestined, we've been chosen in Christ. The path is rooted in Him. And here, that rootedness in Him is to propel us forward in hope. Because we're in Christ, because it's solidified, because we have that, I pray, Lord, their eyes and their heart would be open that they would know the hope to which they have been called. Do you know the hope to which you have been called? Do you know it? Like, you know it, right? Know it. Like, yeah, I know I know it. But do you know it? Do you experience it? Do you live in it? The hope that the gospel brings. It's not this theoretical thing. It. Plain lands in our hearts, and do we know the hope we have in Jesus? Now, when we use the word hope uh, in everyday language, it's like a, a wish, right? I, I, you know, I hope, I hope the Red Sox uh, win the pennant. You know, I hope my hope I get an A on the t- on the test. I hope uh, you know my kid. Ho- hope my kid does well uh, in their game. I, I hope it's like it's uncertain. It's like a crossing of fingers, fifty-fifty. What's going to happen? That's not how the Bible uses hope. Hope is certain. It's a certainty. It's rooted in his calling, which is secure in Christ, but it's for our future blessing. Just as the calling is secure, so is the future promise secure. So hope is living in the present by borrowing the certainty of the future. Right? We reach into the future, it's certain because it's in Christ... And so we borrow the future blessing and live today. We live today with confidence. We're anchored in Christ. We know eternal life is ours. We know all the promises in Christ are yes. So our hope is secure in him. You, you've probably heard this. I've heard this probably 20 times from different preachers, but I'm going to share it. I think it's helpful. Uh, the, 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 this, the situation goes something like this. Imagine two people have the same jobs, same job, and it's a crappy job. And, uh, you know, it's a a factory, it's uh, poor work conditions, long hours, uh, smoke, smog, you know, uh, no no brakes, poorly lit, no AC, terrible situation, awful. Both of them are in the same situation, same circumstance. But one of the workers is promised... After one year, they're going to be given $15,000 for that year of labor and service, right? The other worker, same situation, same conditions, is promised that after one year, they're going to be given $150 million for their service in the same day. Circumstances are the same, right? Same. They're doing the same thing for the year. Same environment, same situation, same work conditions first worker grumbles complains hates his job doesn't want to get out of bed probably knowing the end result is $15,000 somewhere in the middle probably quits the job right tries to find something else. the other worker how does that worker feel he's up early right I mean he's 150 million dollars for one year he's whistling while he works He's high-fiving on the way in, you know. He's loving life. This is great. I can't wait to get to the to the job. Because he knows, right, one, there's no future. There's no promise out there that things are going to get better. This is my lot. This is what it is. The future is bleak for the first. The second, it's difficult. It's a hard job. Same circumstance. But the future is bright and beautiful and good. And so they endure the challenge of the moment. Beloved, the future for us in Christ is bright and beautiful. And so if we're in a moment where it's not, it's difficult, we can, we can reach in and borrow, borrow against that hope for the moment and know that all will be well. Now this is not wishful thinking. This is not, I'm not telling you to do the Christian platitude and just you know, uh, smile and and fake it, pretend, everything's okay, it's great, let's don't talk about heart, everything's great. No, we live in a reality, we live in brokenness, we live in difficulty. But, Paul says, "I I want you to see more than you see. Don't just see what's there, see behind it. To know there's more. We're anchored in a hope and a calling. Clinton Arnold says this, knowing the truth about the future and one's place in these events provides, in Paul's estimation, great comfort for coping with difficulties, injustices, and trials in the present. In the present. Do you have that kind of hope? If you don't have that kind of hope, you we all hope in something. What is it? What what do you hope in? Is it your 401k, right? Retirement, that's up and down. Uh, is it your job, performance? We can lose those. Is it your health? We can get cancer. We can die. Is it your family? They can die. Right? What is it? What are you hoping? What do you put your, your certainty? What is so concrete that it cannot be taken from you? Paul says, would you give them eyes to see beyond all the shiny things in front of them, and see with the eyes of faith the hope to which they've been called, the certainty, certainty of the hope. First thing he says, praise that we know the hope. Second thing he says, that we would know the nature of his glorious inheritance. Verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have called, first thing, Second thing, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now look at this with me, this is interesting. Uh, this wording is different. It, there's a lot of a lot of uh, if you have a study Bible, if you want to look at this footnotes at the bottom, the notes, there's a lot of debate here. Um, is this referring to our inheritance in Christ? What we get? Paul says elsewhere we inherit the kingdom. Jesus says we inherit eternal life, right? I don't think that's what it's saying. That's true. I don't think that's what it's saying. I think what Paul is saying here is not what we inherit, but he's saying that what we would know about God's inheritance. God's inheritance. His glorious inheritance in the saints or so of the saints. God receives an inheritance. Guess what that inheritance is? What's the glorious inheritance that God receives? It's you. It's us. It's the people of God. Sounds weird to us, doesn't it? It's not. Old Testament speaks this way. Remember uh, Moses, uh, the people of God are in Egypt. They're in slavery. What happens? God goes and rescues them and makes them what? His treasured possession, his inheritance The people of God are God's inheritance. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, we are God's inheritance. We belong to him. Verse 7 of chapter 1, we are redeemed. Same word of Egypt. We are brought from death to life, and we are God's inheritance. What is Paul asking? Their eyes may be opened that they might know that we are the glorious inheritance of God himself that we might know our value and our worth we might know that God delights in us um let's be honest that that's that, that's kind of weird to us isn't it? we don't do too well with that right If I I looked at, you know, who could I look at? Dwayne. Dwayne, I just, I delight in you. Right? Feels feels too much. He gave me the heart sign. Feels awkward. God delights in us. We we resist that intimate language. We resist it. We don't like it. Some of us, we have uh, good theology gone bad. Some of us resist on doctrinal grounds. You know, the whole... um, you know, we are sinners, we're dead in sin, um, and which is true, we're dead, we'll read that in chapter 2, um, but we developed in this kind of worm theology, you know, that we're the worst possible thing, we're terrible, awful, everything's awful, terrible, and we, we kind of sit in that theology, yes, we are depraved, yes, we are. Uh, we are depraved in every possible way, but we are also redeemed. We, we, we talk high about sin, but not about redemption. We've minimized what Christ has accomplished. He has redeemed us. We are already with Christ, in Christ, given all the blessings, the glory, holy before Him, blameless in Christ. We are His possession to be delighted in. We fail to think about the weight of what Christ has done. We don't let it sink in. It's easier to talk about the sin part—it's half the truth.
1: The other half is that we are His
0: prized possession. Second, uh, other objection is that we are experience. Our experience—some um, of you to hear—you're delighted in—is would be a foreign, be a foreign concept, right? You have voices in your head. You've known them since childhood. That speak about your worth, and your value, and your dignity. Demeaning, dehumanizing, what your worth is in, what you're thought of maybe by parents, by people, people in leadership, by authority. And so the idea that I'm treasured possession, that hits way too close. I, I, I can't I can't get anywhere near that kind of language. That that if you really believed it, it would just undo you, which is what the gospel does. <laughs> it's too much. It's too powerful. Others of us object because uh, we have been affirmed. We have known affection. We have known praise. But it's been at the cost of earning it, right? We, we, we fought hard to be well-respected and well-loved and well-liked. We've worked hard. We've earned it. We've done it. And this just seems too cheap and too easy. But sinners done nothing for it, undeserving. And yet we've been given the beautifulness of the glory of the gospel, and then become the possession of God himself that we are prized and valued and loved? Too much. Too easy. It's cheap grace. Whatever the case,
1: Paul knows that we have trouble grasping it, and that's why he prays it.
0: He's already told us that in the first verses of the chapter. Now he says, they're, they, don't, they're not, they, don't, they don't get it. We don't get it. God, would you open the eyes of their heart, that they would grasp the nature of your glorious inheritance, your worth of them, your view of them. Can I just ask you this application? Can you wrestle with that? Can you wrestle with the affection of God for you? Can you, can you journal, think, pray, Hear all the voices. Here's all I know I think about myself. Or maybe I've been told about myself. And yet this is what God says about me in Christ. This one's one's way more weighted. You're going to feel it. It hits you every morning when you wake up and you feel inadequate. And yet this one is true. It's true. And Paul says, I want you to know it. Third thing. The hope of our calling to know we are his inheritance. Third, the greatness of his power. Boy, this is good. Verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope. First one, what are the riches and the saints.
1: Third, and what is the immeasurable
0: greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Um, read that again. That's a little clunky. verse 19 immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great mind. You know, it's kind of like, this is not political, it's kind of like Trump, you know, when, when he, 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 he's not super articulate, and so he just says huge, like super huge, huge, you know, he just says it kind of over and over, he lacks adjectives, right, he doesn't know, that's kind of what Paul's doing here, um, the commentator's like, he uses like six words that all mean power. Like, he just keeps compounding them. He's like, super huge, power, awesome, amazing, great might, power, that's awesome. He just keeps saying it because he cannot communicate enough the language of the power of God he wants us to understand. Immeasurable, greatness, power, great might. There's two words that both mean power. He just uses it over and over and over again. Why spend so much time on it? Several of these words uh, that he describes for power are not used anywhere else in the the scripture, but they are found interesting enough in several inscriptions and archaeological digs. Guess where? In Ephesus. And on papyra throughout this time period that are dealing with magic and incantations and rituals. Remember we talked about Acts 19 at the beginning? Ephesians was a, a spiritually loaded environment where they were trying to do exorcisms and they were building idols for, the, for, the, uh, for Artemis that they would worship the goddess. It was a spiritually loaded place. What's Paul doing? Paul's fighting fire with fire, isn't he? He took their language. It's on their, it's on their plaques. One of the plaques says, uses the word immeasurable, but it's it's the greatest God who exceeds all power. That's immeasurable. I call on you. Paul hijacks their language and says, let me tell you. Let me tell you about power. Lord, these people, these Christians, these marginalized, these hostile uh, environment, this church is, is being founded in Ephesus and it's, it's a difficult place, would you give them eyes of their heart to see what they cannot see, and that is the immeasurable greatness of your power. It dwarfs Ephesus. It dwarfs Artemis. And the exorcisms, and the, 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 the magicians, and the incantations. Paul grapples for language to communicate something. And then... The rest of the the verses, 20 to 23, is just him sharing the powerful actions of God. He used words, let me tell you, and he just compounds words about power. And then he says, "Let let let me tell you, let me demonstrate power. What has Artemis done? He says this, briefly.
1: Demonstrate the power.
0: He says that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead
1: you going to see power, resurrection, dead
0: life. That's the power in us. Two, verse 20. That he seated him, that's Christ, at the right hand in the heavenly places. That's power. He took Jesus, resurrected him, ascended him, sat him down in the place of honor, the highest honor and authority. Majesty. Next to Yahweh with power. 22. And he put all things under his feet. Uh, Daniel read Psalm 110, you know, uh, that the enemies become a footstool. Jesus is in the throne and his, his feet are propped up on all the forces and the enemies and the armies and the powers that are against him. That's what it means. It means dominion. It means rule. It means authority. Hey, little church in Ephesus, let me tell you about power. He's been raised. He's seated at the right hand. His enemies, your enemies, are under his foot. They're propping his feet up. And then finally, the fourth one, verse 22. Finally, God gave him, that is Christ, as head over all things. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. All things. It's people. It's earth, heaven and earth. It's spiritual forces. All things means all things under his domain to the church. He wants us to know power. Because he empowers the church as the head, and we are the body to bless, to use, to minister to us and through us in the world. He empowers the church. Real power for real life. Two final thoughts on power before we finish. One. There is a power struggle. There is a real enemy with real intentions and real power uh, at work in our lives and against us. Uh, That is not a popular opinion. Um, That is not going to get you any brownie points in your work, your job. If you start talking like that, you'll probably get a mental health consultation. If you start talking about that, that is the reality what Paul says.
1: The gospel tends to speak of
0: demons and spirits, but here, listen to the language. Y'all hang in there with me. This is important. Listen to the language. Here in Colossians, Paul uses a variety of terms. He says, principalities, authorities, powers, dominions, thrones, angels, rulers, world rulers, elementary spirits. Paul is pulling back the curtain for us, God, would you give them eyes to see what's really going on? There is a cosmic battle, a war. There are spiritual forces at work in oppression, in systems, in places unknown, unnamed. It's happening. Um, Some of you saw the the Grammys, uh, Sam Smith and Kim Petras, um, they did the the, the uh, unholy. You guys see the news on that. The, the uh, they they did they, they did this uh, performance, and uh, it was uh, devils' outfits. You know, pictures of hell, uh, imagery of, of, of fire and, and devils and spears, and of course they're singing this song. And may have called it a, a satanic worship service. All this is going on, and, and it's this sort of explicit demonstration. Um, of the demonic force in the world playing center stage Hollywood. Here it is, right? That's true. It's there, explicit. Gloring, that Glory in, in that which is evil. We should be appalled. And yet, I think there's a more subtle way. A friend of mine who's in ministry wrote this. I thought it was really good. He says, in case you you haven't seen the recent concern about the devilish Grammy performance, some clarity should be found. Indeed, the first thing Satan would do and did do is put on a costume. The last costume he would actually choose is one that looks like a red devil. He would choose something you wanted, something that looked a lot like, like something you longed for. And this would change from age to age, even from one season of your life to the next season of your life. In modern America, if Satan were to take the stage, he would choose to wear a suit and a tie, or maybe a sports jersey, or something more aligned with that which our modern eyes tend to land. Let's remember what our friend C.S. Lewis told us in the Screw Tape Letters. He said this, Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that a stage Satan would look an awful lot like an angel of light. And this is his opinion here. He says the Grammy performance was far more showmanship than it was Satan worship. Your daily news source, on the other hand, well, that might be a different matter altogether. Jargon says screw tape, not argument, it is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Interesting thoughts. Is there explicit demonic work, something like that? Yes. Is it subtle? Is it forces? Is it in our systems?
1: Is it our patterns, our ways of thinking, our habits? There is a
0: spiritual force at work in the world. And if you don't know that, you need to wake up. It's true. Final thought on power. The power of the evil one is inferior to the power of God. You hear that? It's a real power. It's there. Don't need to deny it. This is not a battle among equals. This is not a yin-yang kind of thing. What Paul says in verse 20 and 21, God seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. Power. All things. All demonic forces. All spiritual beings. All systems of oppression. The ultimate reality is what Paul prays. God, would this church, would we as a church have eyes to see the power, immeasurable power of God for us? Personal power. It overcame our sin. We'll look at next week when Ryan preaches. We were dead in sin and we've been brought to life. That's power, resurrection power in us. It's cosmic power. All things, heaven and earth, visible, invisible Resurrection power over struggles and daily life and our addictions and difficulties. God's power. When we have eyes to see, God has gone to great lengths to give us his power. God on the cross in Jesus had the power to step down, to call the angels but God in Christ chose to stay, that in his resurrection, he might give us his power, daily life, cosmic, all things power. What do you not see, believer? If you only see it, you miss it. Pulls the curtain back. Know the hope of your calling. No, wrestle with yourself, our church. The church as the prized possession of God in Christ. And would you know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Resurrection power working in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word so much. Sit with with it for just a moment. moment. If we heard maybe one thing, all those words.
1: One thing when we take it to heart and when it
0: penetrate, and when we have eyes to see, would we understand, would we be enlightened, Paul says, to know it's already true, you've done it in Christ. Would we know it? And would it change us? Oh God, may it be so. Amen.